Welcome to the Mormon Marriages Podcast. I am Angeline Bagley. And I am Nate Bagley. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe that the most important thing in life is your family, and the backbone of your family is your marriage. So on this podcast, we talk with couples from the church who provide amazing insights into what it takes to create a marriage that will make you look forward to eternity. It would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show, uh, review it on iTunes, and reach out to us if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas to make it even better. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Hey, guys. Happy General Conference Week. Yeah. (laughs) General Conference Eve. (laughs) It's coming up. We're already getting exciting announcements. Like, women can now witness temple ceremonies and baptisms. How cool is that? Also children can witness baptisms. Any baptized member. Mm -hmm. That's an exciting thing. Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, I like it. It's all the chatter on the... uh, the blogger knackle it's true i think that it is definitely a great step in the right direction definitely something that people have been waiting for for a long time and i don't want to discredit those who've been waiting for it for a very long time yes and there are many who haven't been waiting for it and are just happy either way and that's great for everybody Mm -hmm. um we should do a whole episode on this i'm very curious to hear there's anyway it's fun it's a fun topic to talk about yeah, definitely. Uh, what else is a fun topic to talk about? Sex. <laughs> it is. It is a good fun topic. That's a great segue, honey. Well, that's what we're talking about in this episode. So you're about to hear the first ever Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist live episode. Okay, this was so much fun. It I really want to do was more amazing. of these. We loved it. It was fun to, to have an actual audience there and to feed off the energy of the crowd and to see so many fans of Jennifer and fans of the show and it just was a We great will definitely experience. do more of these. Yes. So this is part 1. It was an it was a long live episode so we've broken it up into two parts. We're going to do one today and then we'll do the second one next week. Next week will be a bonus episode along with The Lions. That's also a phenomenal episode. So good. Hope you're looking forward to it. So without further ado, let's dive in. This is our very first live episode. Enjoy. All right, so welcome to the first ever Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist live. (laughs) It's like the most irreverent, uh, it's the most irreverent sacrament meeting you'll ever go to. (laughs) Uh, Thank you everybody for coming. If you're tuning in um, on the recording, this is really cool. You missed out. Uh, no, just <laughs> kidding. Um, but we're we're really excited to have Jennifer here to talk to us. Um, some of you, if you're on, if you're listening to the recording, you may not recognize her voice. I promise it is Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a cold. Yes. Um, but we're really excited to have an extra long <coughs> amount of time with you tonight to answer some really cool questions. Great. So just two upcoming events. One is um, that we have a couples retreat in Jackson Hole, October twenty. 4th, I think, through the 30th, and you can come on a Friday, Saturday for just the relationship portion, or and then stay over Sunday, see Jackson Hole, and then uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday is the sexuality course, and you can come for one or both parts of it if you want. We did this last year, and it was a really big hit and really a lovely venue, a lovely place to be, but it allows couples to kind of get away from their families and immerse themselves um, and really address challenges in their relationship in places where they can grow and get, you know, be stronger. And then the second one is just that we have a trip um, planned for France, 11 days couples tour, uh, where we go oh, all over oh, northern so France cool. and southern France, and um, and basically have me teaching along the way, working with you on your relationship um, as much as you want input from me, and. Um, so anyway, there are missionaries planted throughout this crowd <laughs> because they went on the Italy tour and they loved it and they said, yeah, we want to promote France for you. But I told the them that I told, I, awesome. I told them that they can't come the second time and need to make room for other people. But, uh, but they said that they would... Uh, um, tell you about it. So anyway, um, so those are uh, that's in May of next year. So awesome. All right. So 
We personally love the Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist segment that you do, and it's something we listened to before we got married. And um, we loved the conversations that you were having that were breaking the, the stigma behind these conversations and um, making people a little uncomfortable necessarily to get them out of their comfort zones. And it was one of the things that inspired us to start the Mormon Marriages podcast. Oh. So oh. we are really excited that we now have the segment on the Mormon Marriages podcast. Yay. So really happy that you're here. But one question we wanted to ask you to start was, what inspired you to do the Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist segment? Oh, gosh. Yeah, why, why is it important to you? Uh, so why is it important the work I do around this or specifically doing the podcast itself or both? Both. Okay. Both <laughs> what, what, however you want to answer the okay, question. Good. Um, well, I th let me see. How back sh far back should I go? <laughs> <laughs> when I was about this old. No, I, when I was a young person, I, I really probably somewhat like you, Nate, I don't know, listening to you on Wednesday night, but I definitely was someone who was always interested in relationships and why people did the things they did, and I thought about it a lot, and I watched people's marriages a lot when I was younger, and I wanted very much to get married, and I wanted very much to be happy, and I saw a lot of people that were unhappy, so I was kind of a scientist of marriages just at a young age and trying to figure out what made people happy, what didn't. And, um, you know, if someone had told me at a young age I was going to be a sex therapist, I would have been horrified and scared. <laughs> like, what the world's going to happen to me? But, um, you know, I just kind of followed what I loved, and it just kind of brought me here. But I think, you know, I went into my Ph.D. program and started working with uh, marital theory, you know, marriage systems theory. And then when I was, um, I had been asked to teach a human sexuality class as an undergraduate and and I was not yet even married and so it really you know I basically took this multicultural lens around sexuality but I it made me start really thinking about my own upbringing around sexuality and what were the strengths and limitations of that upbringing and then that brought me to my dissertation research and then there was a natural melding between my interest in marriage and my interest in sexuality and helping people really have solid happy passionate marriages and so um, that's what brought me here. And then I think Rational Faiths just reached out to me and said, would you be willing to do something on sexuality and do a podcast with us? And I said, sure. So that's really how it started. And then it was just, um, you know, popular. It was it definitely people would sort of start at the beginning and, you know, learn a lot through it. So we just kept doing it. And then you guys have been a natural segue on that. So I'm grateful for it. Good. We're do, glad. <laughs> do you have like a, a specific mission that you're hoping to accomplish with these episodes? Like, there's not. The, I, I I say this because. So you talk a lot about sex, yes. <clears throat> more than the average person. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, dinner parties. I'm like not sex again. Yeah. Like everybody really <laughs> <die. laughs> yeah. But uh, but um, how do I? I'm trying to think of how to frame this question appropriately. I think the way what I'm what I'm getting at here is um, we we don't talk that much about sex. We talk uh, we talk about a lot of different things. Sex is part of what we talk about. Uh, and in recent, just in the last year, having done all these um, Mormon marriages episodes, we get um, detractors and we get people who kind of uh, don't like some of the things we talk about mm -hmm. or the way that we talk about them. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that because you're so outspoken about sex and, and other things, you mm -hmm. get your fair share of, of haters. And I feel like you wouldn't continue mov moving forward mm -hmm. um, if there wasn't some sort of like personal mission to maybe combat uh, a mindset or uh, uh, some sort of stigma. Like there's something going on in, in our culture uh, in um, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that has you talk about this frequently and not stop talking when people tell you that maybe you shouldn't mm -hmm. be talking. And I'm really curious to know like, if there's something in you, like if there's a mission or a purpose that mm -hmm. drives you or something that ticks you off that you're trying to like overthrow mm -hmm. the man or, or <laughs> you know what I mean? What's, yeah. what's the fire that keeps you doing these episodes other than the fact that people just have questions? Well, I mean, it's a very satisfying work because I see people get happier and people that I don't even know that have listened to these podcasts or others that come up to me and tearfully tell me how much it's 
impacted their life, and it's kind of humbling and amazing. I think that, I don't know, I just have a desire. I think I, so it's a, it's a really good question. I'm trying to figure out how to articulate what it is. I think that um, when I was a missionary, this is just one experience that was significant for me, but when I was a missionary, I, I struggled with, the, with my dissent. You know, there was so much I believed and felt was true, and then there was these things that I felt were wrong, and I struggled with that. And I kept feeling something was wrong with me because I felt like some of the things we were teaching and the way we taught them was working against the goodness that I felt in the church and in my relationship with God. And so I, as a missionary, kind of went on a mission as a sacrifice, in a sense, to God to help me have more wisdom and have more clarity, and um, I kind of put all my questions aside and just fully gave my full best uh, to my experience. And then a f several months before I came home, I kind of went into crisis because a best friend of mine wrote me and told me that she was leaving the church, and so kind of all my questions came flooding back. Um, and so I, I really went and um, just asked God to give me wisdom and to help me. And I was like, I'm not eating till I have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I went 48 hours. I'm like, okay, I'll eat a little. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to be crazy. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, and so I, but I stayed in pursuit and I was writing in my journal a lot and I was really struggling for an answer. And, and four days into that, I, I really received what I knew was my answer, which was, uh, it was Semana Santa in Spain, um, the Holy Week, and so these f very ornate floats and Catholic traditions were, were everywhere, and I was watching these people walking barefoot, uh, clothed in black, behind these floats, and them expressing their devotion in this particular way, and it really, um, it just it came to me in a way I understood was my answer, that, that there are false traditions everywhere, Jennifer, including in this church, and it's your job to wrestle with what's right and wrong and to align yourself with what's right and stand up for what's right. And I was terrified of that answer. I didn't want that answer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because if you've listened to any of my courses, it's, I talk a lot about this issue of validation, and I like validation. I like it a lot more than integrity sometimes. <laughs> and I knew it was a push that I had if I was going to create goodness and really manifest my belief in God and goodness, I had to lean into, I had to discern and take responsibility and really stand up for what I felt was true, even though I could be wrong. And But it gave me a different understanding of God and of myself. And it honestly took me a few years to get more courageous around that. I think I went back to BYU and just still tried to put my questions aside and push myself into what I knew would get validation. And then I knew I had to sort of stop doing that. So I think um, I've just really, I care. I'm not supposed to say Mormons anymore, but it's very hard to do. <laughs> Mormons are my people, you know. This I grew up, and the people that were, my parents grew up in Idaho. I grew up in Vermont because that my dad had taken a job back in Vermont, and so my extended family was the ward, and they were good to me, and these were people that cared about me, and so I, and I could see my mother's unhappiness sometimes, and I was very aware of it. Um, that while she was beloved and had a lot of strength, that I felt a sense of her um, struggling in the mores of the church. And I just could track it, and I wanted to help solve it, not just for her, but for other Mormon women. But of course, my work around Mormon women and sexuality has led me to couples and, and better understanding kind of how we've set marriage up and selfhood up, um, not because, you know, because well-intentioned often, but creating limitations that we often can't even see. And so I think I just feel an invitation to do it imperfectly, but to offer my honest view of how to be stronger people and have better partnerships, which I think is at the core of all capacity for joy and to, to, to raise and give our kids our best is to create 
alignment within our marriages. So I, and sexuality is a really big and important part of it. And so, you know, helping people create goodness with their sexuality, I think, really matters. So I, you know, I like validation. I've said to my husband sometimes, I should just talk to people about communication, like, because nobody gets upset about that. You know? <laughs> if I want validation, like, drop the whole sexuality thing, you know, and, um, but I guess I just, I just know it's important and I'm grateful that it means something to people. That certainly, certainly helped me to keep moving because if I felt like it wasn't resonating, then I would think I must be off in some way. So, yeah. Well, and I think it, it, the fact that we have a room full of people here, it just goes to show that people are craving these kinds of conversations, especially yeah. in our culture. <clears throat> yeah. And sometimes it just takes someone to stand up and be bold to give permission for other people yes. to ask themselves those questions. That's right. And the fact that they have this avenue now where they can ask it anonymously so they don't yes. have to worry about that. It, it it's it normalizing helps. and it helps right. you. Like I was te teaching today, to, and sometimes women raise their hands and say, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to ask this, and I, I, you know, maybe you're all going to look at me weird, and I'm like, there's no chance. I mean, you're going to say that, and half the room will identify with it. It's just that we often don't know it because we don't have the opportunity to talk at that level. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. Speaking of sitting in this room, I can't get this thought out of my head, but I feel. Does anybody else feel like we're in kind of like a rundown celestial room? <laughs> <laughs> We've all oh got our God. shoes off. There's mirrors everywhere. The walls are all white. <laughs> it's so weird. I'm sitting here like, <laughs> this is like, it was like the terrestrial version of a celestial yeah. room. This is what happens if you don't get your marriage together. Yeah. There you, go. you have to sit in a room with your socks off with strangers. <laughs> and they'll tell you, you're in the right place. Trust us. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to break the, the mood. I just couldn't get it That's out of my funny. head. Um, should we jump into a question? Sure. Let's Thank do you it. for answering that, by the way. That, my pleasure. Uh, it gave me a lot of context into who you are and why you do this, and I, I, I really appreciate it. Thank it you. You absolutely. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely yes. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask our first question. Are you cool with that? Go for it. Um, all right. So the first question says, uh, I live in Utah and I feel like there's a lot of pressure from my ward and surroundings suppressing my sexuality. When I'm, my, when, when I'm on vacation or trips alone with my husband, I feel so able to claim my sexuality. But when I come back from trips and vacations, I feel like I get stripped, it gets stripped away with motherhood, the sense of what it is to be female. And then I feel like an object to be managed sexually. I recognize a perfect Mormon woman is made up of cultural, is a made up cultural myth, but I feel that owning my sexuality is possible. I also find that I resent my husband's sexuality and I'm judgmental of it and I need help. How do I become a whole woman and stay solid in my sexuality? The shame force is strong in Utah. Can you paint me a picture of what a whole sexual LDS woman looks like? Honestly, when I try to paint or describe a whole woman, it ends up looking like a hot mess woman with, <laughs> <laughs> with holes to be used and objectified. Not a, not a whole woman, holes and holes, I get the pun there, I find on vacation. Um, maybe I should have had Angela read that, so this didn't come across in a masculine voice. <laughs> Such a feminine question. Okay, yeah, good question. <laughs> Jennifer, uh, tell me about being a whole woman. <laughs> I can see why you're struggling with that. Yes. <laughs> so I have so many questions for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was my question watching you say it. I was like. Should I, would it have been better if I was making eye contact with you? <laughs> Describe what it means to be a whole woman. <laughs> Sorry, okay, kicking it over yeah, to you. Good question. Um, well, I think first of all, what I would say is for a lot of people, just to be go on vacation and get outside of the roles of motherhood and you know community service leader and all the things that put you in the frame of duty and community and um, kind of role, a role-based life, it's very easy for sexuality to not have a place in that, right? Because we, we quickly sort of make obligation and being sort of a 
good person is sort of, we, we naturally, culturally strip sexuality out of it. So for many people I've worked with where they go on vacation with their spouse and they just feel connected to themselves and their sexuality in a different way because some of those self-references aren't so strong and they can sort of experience themselves differently and their sensuality differently and their sense of their, you know, they feel like they're dating again, they're with their spouse in a different way. So that's not particularly unusual and um, that's partly why going on vacation can be so nice because you can experience yourself in a different way and step outside of those roles. And it's what a lot of people lose when they get married and start having kids. They start losing their sense of self as a, as a woman, I'll put it in that frame for right now, but just as a woman, first, a wife second, a mother third, and mother and wife and whatever that means within their cultural framing can often press in on the self so much that sexuality kind of disappears. So there's a certain normalcy to it, and I think particularly if you're mothering young children, you know, I've said this in other podcasts, but mothering, especially young children, is self-suppressing because the desires that you want and the things that you matter to you do kind of need to take a back seat if that baby's gonna stay alive. And so there is a natural self-suppression that happens that's biologically important, but it can really get sort of stuck in that in just our notions of what it is to mother, um, even when our children start growing up more. And a lot of us don't believe in the idea or we haven't had any role modeling of a woman that can belong to herself and be a good mother. You know, a lot of the songs I remember hearing growing up and stuff was, you were such a good mother to me, you gave up your PhD, that kind of thing, you know, and that, that was one of them, I remember hearing that on one of the stations here. But, um, you know, and so that the idea that you give up self makes you the good mother and so when we have those ideas, it can be really, many women's sexual desire plummets upon having a baby. It's not just because of the sleep deprivation and their body you know, feels so different to them and all those things, but it can often be even that I've stepped into a different identity and it's an identity that feels incongruous for me with mothering. You know, that nurturing and selflessness and caregiving are incongruous with a woman who is confident in her sexuality and can foster her eroticism. And so, you know, culturally, and not just LDS culture, but outside of it, has not done a good job of, of allowing women to be good mothers and whole women. So that, that's a big factor that's at play. And so when people go on vacation, a lot of times then they feel more able to feel like a woman again because those other roles aren't, aren't so front and center. But I think what this person is asking is that when you come back, you know, everything you sort of felt and identified with on vacation and, you know, the pleasure and sensuality maybe you could experience, that now it doesn't fit. It's not just, oh, I'm back to the grind and so we've gotten busy again. It's, I think what you're saying is it doesn't actually fit with you kind of get infected with the cultural idea that the good woman isn't sexual and then your mind goes back into what I think is a very typical way that we put our sexuality together as LDS women, which is sex is something you do to put up with these boorish men, right? And so we, we easily kind of inherit that idea that sex is something you do for a man and that sexuality belongs to men, and so we're good and noble just to put up with them. And I think, you know, you can feel that without anybody ever saying it, right? I mean, there, there's ways in which sometimes when you are, when I'm here, you know, I am in Chicago, and so there's like nobody in my neighborhood who's LDS, and so you, mm -hmm. you know, you experience it a little bit differently, and I grew up in Vermont, so, I think there's a different experience for clients that I work with from Utah. There's a sense of expectation and mores that are sort of pressed on your psyche in a, in a more pernicious way. And um, I think that there's an advantage to that because when you're in small communities, and not just LDS communities, but small communities, people know you and people are aware of you and that's, that's, that's favorable, right? But then it can also be more psychologically oppressive because you feel what other people are doing and what they might think if you go on a date night and you don't wear your garments or something like that. And so it can feel much more uh, harder to literally psychologically differentiate. 
So you know, a lot of the work that I talk about is the importance of psychological differentiation, that, you, that you're able to kind of know your own mind and know your own experience and, and forge a self in the world, even if other people don't think it should be that way. So, you know, one other question that came in tonight that I didn't end up answering was about garments and, you know, if we were to go on a date night, what if somebody sees us and it has social consequences if, if someone were to see us? And, and that is true, it can have social consequences and I don't think you should be ignorant about that. But I also think that we are our freest when we insert our integrity into the world and dare to stand up for what we think really creates strength and goodness. So. I guess what I'm saying is both a sympathetic response, which is yes, you know, if you want to be freer, move to Chicago, okay? <laughs> it's easier because it's not so, you know, nobody gets too distressed if you show up in pants or something at church. I mean, now it's different because of missionaries. But I mean, you know, nobody, I remember growing up in Vermont, no, people were just glad you were there, you know what I mean? It didn't really matter what you were wearing. And, um, and I think here there's a stronger sort of pressure for conformity. And I think in some ways appreciating there's some value in that gives you community, but it does mean I have to take more courage to assert what I believe is good and good for my life and tolerate it and sort of see yourself more as being able to be an example. I mean, I do think that's something that does help me is, is just that if this feels right and true for me, there's a good chance it would be helpful to somebody else for me to just claim not in a, you know, forcing it down anyone's throat or get, trying to get anyone to agree with it, but just living my life comfortably, confidently. It is a light to other people. And so, you know, there's been times in Relief Society or something and I've thought, you know, I really just shouldn't say it today, just let it go, don't, don't worry. And then I just like, no, I just, I just have to say it and I, you know, feel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Angel Angeline can like sense it when I'm doing that. Yeah, uh, we'll be in Sunday school and she puts her hand on my She's leg. Like, she looks at me and goes, oh boy. It's going to be okay. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. And you know, so often people that I don't even expect will come up and say, that was so helpful for me to know that's your experience and that just helped me, you know, feel more normal. So I think that, you know, in some ways, there's nothing better than claiming your sexuality, not flaunting it, not being over the top, not offending the neighborhood, obviously. But, <laughs> but you know, just like, uh, yes, I enjoy this as a good part of my life. And, and understanding that people that are struggling with it are struggling, and I know this sounds patronizing, but they're struggling at a lower level. I think when it comes to this issue of validation, it gets easier when you, you, you live in the fruits of living by truer principles, and you have more happiness, and you have more of a sense of freedom, that people that may come in and judge it, you sort of understand that they're, they're operating from a different place, and that's okay, but I don't have to judge my life through that frame. And so this is really important, this idea of planting seeds and allowing to see if they grow and if they expand your soul and they are enlightening to you and delicious to you, that is a way that God is communicating what true principles are and what goodness is. And it's important to take that seriously. The referencing of what everybody's okay with keeps us stuck in our development. Yeah. <laughs> so Jennifer, just one thing I was thinking of when you were answering that question is, um, the whole idea of leaving on vacation and how that kind of helps. You're in a completely different environment and you kind of have this unspoken permission to yes. be a different person. Mm -hmm. And then when you come home, everything's the same and you just kind of fall back into that same mentality. And it reminded me of when I came home from my mission and went, moved back in with my parents and I hadn't lived with my parents for eight years. Mm. And going back to live with them, I started getting back into that mentality of being in high school and right. starting to have like my high school bad habits. We start breaking out in acne and things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I just think that maybe sometimes when we go back to what we're comfortable with and used to, it's easy to fall back into Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Those old habits. And Sometimes we resist change, but change can be so important for our growth. So yeah. what can we do to, to incorporate some enough change in our lives that we can give ourselves that permission to be different? That's a great question. I mean, I do think this is, and I heard you say this Wednesday night, Nate, which is 
don't be an insight chaser, but a action, action taker, right? Mm -hmm. Is action is extremely important, and action is what creates brain change. You can have all kinds of insight about what might be a good idea, but actually stepping into behavior is a, is really the key, and that's really part of the gospel idea, which is that you know belief isn't really virtuous, faith is, because faith is action towards a higher goal. And faith leads to knowledge because you've actually increased your functioning by actually stepping into new behavior. Mm. I think one of the reasons we have Sabbath, prayer, you know, sacrament, these are self-reflective times. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't use them in that way. But I think having a way of, one of the things I talked about in the workshop today was women creating a new vision for themselves of who they want to be. And, you know, to how I want, what kind of person I want to be. Who do I want to be around my sexuality? Who do I want to be in my relationship? Because if you have a clear vision of what you're aiming for, then you can, you can evolve. And, you know, when we, Christ talks about take no thought for the morrow and so on, it, mm -hmm. it, this is not, you know, hey, it's cool, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. that's not the idea. It's, pointing in the right direction, right? When we sin, it's when we're off the mark. Repentance is to come back into the right direction, pointing towards the right thing, and then dealing with just that day, right? At what's gonna get me closer to that today? Mm -hmm. And that allows it to be metabolizable, but then you're stronger on the day two. And how do I stay pointed in the right direction? That takes deliberateness. If we allow habit, we just, we regress so easily. And, um, and so how do I keep myself deliberate? Okay, prayer, meditation, self-reflection, extremely important. Keep myself pointed in the right direction and deal with today. What does a woman who embraces her sexuality do on a day like today when I have these obstacles? How does a woman who is comfortable with herself sexually and is an equal partner with her husband, is not a series of holes, and is a partner and friend, how does she handle this barrier right now? Mm -hmm. So you're keeping yourself pointed towards what you want to create, and then you deal with what's right in front of you. Mm, I love that. Makes it so much more manageable, mm -hmm. just little pieces at a time. Mm -hmm. I, I hear you use the word integrity a lot, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you can um, maybe give me uh, a picture of that. Jennifer's definition of what integrity as a human being means. I think it yes. might provide some good context for your conversations going forward. Sure. Just think about how to answer that. I mean, I think what integrity is, is to not be a house divided, right? And to not be a house divided, you have to, you have to listen to and honor your conscience, and you have to act congruently with your conscience. It doesn't mean that we're always right, okay, or that we don't make mistakes, guarantee you we will, but that you are you are earnestly trying to not work within the schism. You know, human beings are so good at self-deception. We're so good at buying our own lies because they make us comfortable and they allow us to stay where we cur currently are and get focused on other people's fallibility so we don't have to deal with our own. But I think that, um, you know, being honest with ourselves and being willing to face what's uncomfortable and then address it earnestly, even though imperfectly. That's what integrity is. And it, that, you know, when Christ talks about be therefore perfect, it's not flawless. That's an industrial revolution idea. Perfect in that context was about being whole. And so it's not about being flawless. We never will. We're just human. That's how it is. But to be whole, that's where peace is. And if you don't have wherever you, you know, sometimes when I'm up against a schism in myself, and I know I am, and I'm working really hard to keep lying to myself so I don't have to grow up, okay, around something, you know, I'll be like trying to convince myself for three days, and then finally I'm like, oh, give it up. You know, like it's just like I just have to do the hard thing of facing what I don't want to face. It always hurts, it's always uncomfortable, but freedom is always on the other side of it. And so I think that's really when we talk about, you know, the gospel setting us, truth setting us free, or gospel being about joy. You know, we're like, okay, I'm going to church, and I got, the, you know, like a lot of times we're so dutiful and weighed down, and I'm so imperfect, and so, on. and I just don't think that's the right understanding. It's that I'm, I'm willing to be congruent within myself and tolerate the growth that that will inevitably press upon me. That's how we find peace. Hmm. Love that. Thank you. Um, we, 
The idea of, of the truth will set you free is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, I, I, I've noticed that when we talk, I mean, when we talk about truth, sometimes we talk about it as like not lying. Yes. Um, but I've, I've noticed that it's a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times we're ignorant to the untruths that we're living. That's absolutely right. Yes. And and so that's part why you of need a therapist. That's why people right. need therapists. Yeah, exactly. They need a wise yes. person or, yeah. or a, you know a, a clergy or somebody somebody to give you input on what you can't yeah. see. It's the hero's journey. Every yeah. Luke needs an Obi Wan, and yeah. every Frodo needs a Gandalf. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. But that, but you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, they're the people who show you the way, and they're like the the the, the seers, the, yes. the people who point you in the right direction. And that's Think, the, the yeah. goal of a therapist. They can give you a more accurate perception of your own reality. That's right. Um, yeah. But my well, we talked about this just on our recent podcast, but. Uh, so we, we had an experience a couple weeks ago where Angeline was having some pretty bad anxiety. Mm. And I, I noticed, it was this weird moment, something clicked in my brain, where I noticed that the reason she was feeling anxious is because she was believing a lie that she was telling herself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I realized it was my job as her husband in that moment not to, reinf- to, to show empathy but not reinforce the lie. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Right. And and it was interesting to me how I could show empathy while calling out the lie and like hold space for the truth. Yeah. And the more I did that, the more like the lie she was telling herself in that moment was I'm not a good nurse. She had a patient that yelled at her and she's an amazing she, my we're going to celebrate my wife right now. <laughs> my my wife just a few months ago won the caregiver of the year award for all of Intermountain Healthcare. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. So like Thousands and thousands and thousands of nurses in this hospital organization, and she was one of like 50 that were recognized. Wow. And she had a patient get upset with her because the patient it doesn't matter why, um, but the patient was having a bad day, and Angeline was having a bad day, and um, and the, what the patient said really got to her. And she came home believing the lie that I'm a bad nurse, I'm a bad nurse, I'm a terrible nurse, I suck at my job. Why do I even go there? Do, do my peers even respect me? Maybe all these things that I said were, that I was good were a lie. And I was like, my wife is spiraling, <laughs> and I love her, and I'm like, I can tell you're having a hard time right now. There's my empathy, and then the moment I could call out the truth and say, but what's, I'm not going to reinforce this lie and tell you you are a good ner- or a bad nurse, um, she started to come out of it. Mm-hmm. And it, the truth really does set you free. It's, yeah. it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy when you start to find the, the areas in, in your life where you're lying, yep. even uh, subconsciously. Yep. Where it, it, those are the moments where I find that you start to find your strength and where no, you start absolutely. to feel like you're living in your integrity. That's why I tell people the truth as much as I can as a therapist. I mean, sometimes I'm blind to things too. But, yeah. but you know, it used to be so hard for me. I grew up being a nice girl and I remember that was how I learned to be female mm-hmm. is you're nice and you don't make people upset and you don't say hard things. And I'm like, if I'm going to be a good therapist, I have to say hard things to men sometimes. Okay. <laughs> and they're going to get upset with me and I'm breaking all my inner rules. Okay. But the only way I'm going to help this person, if he can see what he's actually doing in his life and to his marriage and so on. I remember the first time I confronted this guy, like, look, this is what you're doing. Like the room was spinning around me. I'm like, I was a new therapist. And I'm like, you're being really cruel to your wife, you know, but, and he barks back at me, you know, cause he could tell I'm like, <laughs> and he's like, ah, and I'm like, okay, no, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, you are a nice guy. Okay. <laughs> I just kind of like, oh, I can't do this. But you know, the, but I've just realized, you know, when I tell people the truth and I help them see things, they get stronger. Now, some people just kick against the pricks, whatever that, you know, some people just like, you're terrible and I hate you and I'm out of here. But most people will take it, they'll go home, they'll grieve, they'll come out better and they'll come back doing differently and be stronger and then they are free. And it's just a necessary growth process that is hard and I do it because I respect people. Mm-hmm. You know, some people I'm like, I do it because I'm getting mad at them. <laughs> so I don't mean I'm always in my noble self, but, but you know, it, but it is a way of helping people get a hold of themselves and get stronger. And when I can hold on to that, I have a lot more courage to say the hard thing and let them be upset with me. Yeah. I sat mm-hmm. in a training all day today with the Gottmans, and one of the things that they say often is um, underneath every well, – I think Sue Johnson maybe says this, but underneath every complaint is a longing for, for connection and understanding. Mm-hmm. And that, I, 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 the truth is hard. Yes. And sometimes those moments when we're in the midst of conflict with our partner, um, yeah. it's, it's easy to forget that like there's a nugget of truth in there that if we can just yeah. swallow <clears throat> it – 
it will actually Absolutely. help us be more connected. Anyway, one of the things I I'm spiraling now. Too no, yeah, but one of the things I say in my couples course, I say, like, what is that? What am I pretending not to know about my role in this problem, or what is true in what my spouse is saying that I don't want to deal with? That's why I'm dealing with the other part I can get away with. <laughs> yep. Totally. Should we is ask there another, another question? question? Mm-hmm. You're in my brain, babe. I am. Um, will you read number? Let's see if we can get it to flip this way. Technical difficulties. Number 11. Number 11. That was the one, right? Yes, I think so. Okay. I have been married for 15 years and have never had an orgasm. We have tried and tried, but I just can't do it. How do you do it? My husband and I fit the Mormon mold when it comes to the fact that we were never talked to about sex in any way other than it was bad. What would your suggestion for me to what would be your suggestion for me to do? Okay, good. I mean, this person, I, don't, I can't ask her follow-up questions, so I don't necessarily know what all has been tried. But um, I do think that anxiety works against orgasm. Mm-hmm. And, so, and for many people, and you know, women in particular, can feel deep anxiety that the fact that they have an orgasm, orgasm is a measure of their self. And so they often, women often will approach this issue of orgasm as a way of trying to feel that they are sufficient or that they're a whole woman. And so there's enormous pressure on achieving orgasm because it's connected to your sense of self. And when you put that kind of pressure on something that you have no control over, which is an orgasm. You have control over how your arousal, you have control over maybe what you might do, but, but it's a reflex in your body and it has entirely to do with whether or not you're gonna get over this orgasm threshold. And because you can't control whether or not you get over that orgasm threshold, measuring yourself on it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think that I, I can talk a little bit about strategies that people can use, but I think how you're in relationship to yourself and your sexuality is of utmost most importance. Because if you're trying to get do this to feel whole, it won't work. If you're engaging your sexuality because you want to expand it and grow it and um, relate to yourself in a more compassionate and um, strong way, that's, that's a measure of self, that's a measure of who you are and the kind of woman you are because of how you're relating to the aspects you can control. So I'll say a little bit more about that part in a second, but I think that because anxiety is such a factor that I do often encourage women to, if they've never orgasmed and they've been trying to do this in their partnership, that they try it alone because what often is happening is that they are so aware that their spouse is getting bored and they feel so much performance pressure and they feel like, you know, this is something I, you know, I, I'm never going to achieve with him. If you can just get yourself off stage in a sense and just be with your own body, it allows you to have more time to f- figure out what feels good, what offers me pleasure. If in the case, as such as this woman, you've grown up in an environment that's been strictly shaming of sexuality, there are there's just a lot I can say about this, but one is that the body responds. If, if, if the body and the vulva in particular, if you know that you have been shaming of it, you know there's no room for it, you haven't been able to integrate this into your sense of self, it literally becomes more numb. I mean, it becomes less sensitized. And so I think that people you know, have to, in some sense, challenge or deprogram how they've learned to relate to the body that God gave them and how they relate to their own um, sexual anatomy. And so I think not only being alone with yourself because you have more ability to control the stimulation you get and your anxiety's lower, but to be in relationship to your body in a kinder and more compassionate way, the way you would want your spouse to be in relationship to you and your body. And you know, a lot of us have been quite unkind to our vulvas <laughs> you know <laughs> we have been very rejecting and you know some many women are unable to even look in a mirror and see their own vulva they feel so much self-rejection and this is an inherited self-rejection and women sort of learn that the way to be a good woman is to desexualize yourself so 
it's, it's the courage to kind of, it's not just about achieving the orgasm, it's about shifting your relationship to yourself and your sexuality. That's a foundational piece that's really important. And so if you can think about being in a more embracing relationship, a more a kinder and more compassionate relationship to your own body, then touch yourself like you care about yourself. Touch yourself like you are grateful for this gift from God, that you're grateful for this part of your body, and then be in pursuit of pleasure, not orgasm. And you can experiment with different stroking styles and different kinds of pressure. You can, especially, uh, you know, for many women, um, a well-streamed, a well-aimed stream of water is often their first orgasm. So you can use a shower head or a jacuzzi. I would make it a private jacuzzi, not a public. <laughs> Jim. <laughs> no. Hey, Becky. <laughs> How's it going? It's looking like it's going well. So, uh, <laughs> um, oh, dear. so um, or a vibrator. And some people are afraid of vibrators because they're afraid, well, maybe I'll get hooked on it or I won't be able to have an orgasm with my spouse. Um, and you know, there, that, that's possible that, you know, if, but, but the thing is there's a lot of flexibility. So if you've never had an orgasm, a vibrator may be a good, some, some people don't like but vibrators you, you at all. You can use a vibrator and your spouse can still be involved. Let's just uh, let's oh, absolutely. put that at absolutely. the same time even. Absolutely. So you can get For the uninformed. So you can get a C ring, <laughs> right. So you can get a C ring that is a vibrating ring that goes around the husband's phallus so it can stimulate the clitoris during intercourse. Right. There's, uh, you can, but the other thing you can do is that you can, and um, you, you know, once you have your first orgasm, it's like the orgasm threshold and the arousal threshold. So as you're getting closer and closer to the orgasm threshold, right as you can feel that orgasmic inevitability, just when you're almost there, then you'd shift from the vibrator to a different kind of stimulation, like manual stimulation. And the brain is like, wait, we're about to, you know, and then it can, the brain will re you know, rework itself to still get over that threshold, but taking in a different kind of stimulation. So you can expand the ways in which you can reach that threshold by working with it when you're very close to orgasm. So, but you know, you, but a vibrator could be a great way to start. Yeah. Jennifer, you're so creative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's important to think about it as a skill. And yeah. it takes practice. Absolutely. And it's okay if it doesn't come natural like mm -hmm. everyone says it does. It doesn't yes. have to come natural. I have a client who has tried for months and finally had... And, and she's been patient. That's the thing I respect so much. She has been diligent. And it used to be she couldn't even look at her own vulva without, like, almost, she, and she'd get to 10 seconds, and then she's like, I'm going to, tomorrow it's going to be 20 seconds, okay? I'm not going to, and, and, you know, it sounds simple, but it was really anxiety-evoking for her, and it got so she could actually look at her vulva. And then she started to touch herself, and just persistence and staying in it and tolerating her sense of failure and tolerating the anxiety and the voices coming in and telling her she's a bad person for doing this and persisting. So I have tremendous respect for this. And then she had her first small orgasm. And, you know, and that's a good start. And then you can also increase orgasms by, you know, if we pretend there's a line here, here's the... Um, what it is called, the, the arousal threshold and the orgasm threshold, you know, you can increase orgasms by kind of working up, you know, you come to a certain amount of arousal and then drop back. You can do this with your spouse, you can do this with yourself. Drop back and allow that stimulation to come down a bit and then increase the arousal a little higher and then drop back. This is sometimes called teasing, okay, but it's on again and off again. And it allows this orgasmic intensity to build. And then you can do it up higher and then come back. And this is what tantric is, is that you're staying in that pre-orgasmic state for a long time. And so, um, but the more that you play in that area, by the time you come over that threshold, you've built up a lot of tension. And you know, that's you know, when you have to make sure your eyeballs don't pop out because it can be <laughs> pretty intense. <laughs> it's a little dangerous, but anyway. And that's for both male and female. Like yes. it works the same for both oh, genders. Oh yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Um, I think one other thing that might be important to, to toss out there, and you kind of already talked about this, though, is um, what's the narrative, maybe subconscious narrative going on in your brain when you're not successful in your goal? Yeah. Like if you're, if you're setting out to achieve orgasm and it doesn't pan out, do you have this narrative going on in your head of like, oh, I'm such a failure. Yes. I can't believe I failed again. That's exactly what I ask women to do, is, or you know, women in this case, to look to look at what is going on in their yeah. heads and then work with what that message is. So if it's like I shouldn't even be doing this, uh, or I'm broken that I have to do this at all. If I were a yeah. real woman, I wouldn't even be. And so then to challenge those things, or what happens for some women is they start to feel arousal, and if they were sexually abused, it pulls up all this feeling of anxiety and these regressive feelings and and to not orgasm is almost like the body's way of rejecting what happened to them and so you want to look at what's the meaning that's coming into your mind and can you work with it so if it's like oh i'm broken i'm not enough and say no i'm not this is what i would be the replacement thought i'm not i'm not defined by whether or not i have an orgasm what defines me is the courage and the um the courage in which I relate to myself and my sexuality and the courage in which I'm confronting limitations and growing. So that's that's a more important measure of me. Or I shouldn't be doing this only, you know, dirty people will do this. Well, that's something that I have been taught, but I'm doing this because I want to accept the gift of my sexuality, know it better, and be able to create a more solid relationship with my spouse. That makes me a good person. That makes me a courageous person. Or if it's about sexual trauma, you could replace it with this idea that, that my pleasure and my capacity to create this pleasure in my life does not make me complicit in what happened to me. I'm reclaiming the sexuality that always belonged to me. And this is about me taking back what was always mine, right? So when it's aligned with our sense of self, our ability to move forward is much, much higher than if, it's, if we feel our self is disappearing in it. Okay, I'm not the woman I thought I was. Okay, you're not going to want anything to do with sex. If you're there just propping up your spouse's ego, you're not going to want anything to do with sex. If you think it's a validation of your abuse, you're going to want nothing to do with it. If it's about claiming a deeper sense of yourself, which is very much what my women's sexuality course is about, is that then then you have the the ability to actually integrate this part of yourself and embrace it fully and move forward with it. So self really matters to us. We want to belong to ourselves more than we want to be sexual, as David Schnarch talks about. Thank you. <laughs> All right, and there you have it, part one. Of Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist Live. Mm -hmm. If you want to have your question answered by Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife on a future Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist episode, you can go to mormonmarriages.com slash ask. <laughs> you want to say that five times fast? <laughs> mormonmarriages.com. It sounded like I said calm. It did. Mormonmarriages.com slash ask, A-S-K, not A-S-S. <laughs> not like the donkey or the <laughs> bum. Um, and there's a little form you can fill out there. Give us a little bit of context into your life. And we will do our best to get them answered over time. Right. And just, and we haven't asked for this for a while, but please subscribe to the show if you enjoy it. Give us a rating and review. Um, we, we just passed 200 reviews. We did just pass 200 reviews. We should celebrate somehow. And we really enjoy your feedback and we take it to heart and try to apply it to make the show even better and it also makes us more discoverable yeah. to other people finding the show more members of the church will find it and non-members of the church there's a lot of people who listen who are not lds right so that would just mean a lot to us if you did that and um it would also be great latter-day saints for this specific seg segment to get out there so we love you and we hope you look forward to part two we're leaving you on kind of a cliffhanger aren't we enjoy conference all right we'll see you next week bye